For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 26, which it's a continuation of our study last week on the body of Christ. I think it'd be good for us to do a little bit of review, especially if you weren't here last week. The starting point really for this passage might be verse 13, which says, We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Paul gives us a profound verse which gives us the basis for unity and equality in what he calls the body of Christ. And he says that we have been baptized by one Spirit. We explained last week that this concept of baptism doesn't, it's, we shouldn't think of this synonymously with water baptism, but the Greek word just simply means to put into. So the context would determine what is being put into what. And in this case, it's that the Spirit places us into Christ. And <clears throat> this concept of the Spirit placing us into Christ or uniting us with Christ is what some theologians would call the mystical union of believers to Christ. That the moment we turn to Christ and ask for His forgiveness, which He purchased for us on the cross 2,000 years ago, that at that very moment, God actually unites us with Christ. So that our identity really uh, becomes one and the same with His. And that also has further implications for us individually and corporately. That we not only have a relationship with God and that we're united to Him, but that we're also individually united to one another because of our union with Christ. So God gives us a unique basis for real unity that I think our world longs for. Paul puts it differently in Romans 12, verse 4 through 5. He says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So Paul sort of envisions us becoming like the body of Jesus here on earth. And he must have inferred this because as he, as a non-Christian person, was going to persecute believers in the city of Damascus, as he was traveling on that road, the risen Christ actually confronted him, struck him blind, and the thing he said to, to Saul was, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? By that time, Jesus had already ascended to the Father. And so, how could Jesus say, why are you persecuting me when Jesus wasn't even on earth at the time? It's because Paul, or it's because Jesus uh, viewed his followers as really one and the same as, as himself. And so from that, Paul must have inferred that we function as Christ's body here on earth, that we are like an organism growing and multiplying, and that 
our presence here on earth represents God's presence on earth. Just like the temple uh, functioned in that way in the Old Testament. Now, we talked a little bit about two different models. The institutional model of the church versus the organic model of the church. You know, in the institutional model... You have God directing the clergy, you know, whether that's a priest or a pastor. And typically the lead pastor or bishop will have, you know, an advisory board, maybe an elder board that gives him some suggestions or input. But ultimately they don't have a vote. Really, the direction of the church rests exclusively upon the pastor And, you know, maybe the lead pastor or priest will have like an executive board that will carry out his wishes, but really, they're not making any decisions. They're there to simply carry out and execute uh, the will of the lead pastor. And so, you have the clergy or staff that then serve and minister to the laity which uh, in Greek, the word laos means people. And so these are the common people who, you know, sit back on a Sunday morning at the service and receive their blessing as they listen to the worship music and also listen to the word for that day from the pastor. And so you have really a hierarchical model where you have this the leadership essentially doing all the work and the ministry and then everybody else receiving the blessing. By contrast then, you have the organic model. You know, these little blobs represent each and every one of us, unique and distinct in the way that God has gifted us and placed us individually in the body of Christ. And interspersed within there, God has raised up a leadership from among his people, you know, unlike the institutional church where typically you'll put together a search committee and, you know, what the search committee will do is they will review a large database of pastors in that particular denomination, in some cases thousands of names, in order to find somebody who will pastor at their church. In this case, God raises up from among the people from within the body of Christ, individuals exhibiting and functioning as leaders. And their role isn't to do all the ministry. They're there to equip the brothers and sisters, the the people, to carry out God's service. And so it's not a hierarchical model. It's more like an organic model where each individual member plays his or her part and in so doing, a healthy body will naturally grow. So really you have two radically different pictures of the church here. And I believe as I've studied the New Testament, the model that God puts forward is the organic model. It's it's not this top-down, authoritarian, hierarchical model, but one where God works through individuals in a local body of Christ. He says in verse 14, now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And you know, as we go through the rest of this passage, we want to outline some principles, nine in all, of body life. And so he says that the body is not made up of one part. 
And you know, this statement argues against a man-centered model of the church. You know, today, in our modern world, especially here in America, you have mega churches just sprouting up throughout the country. And typically, you'll have at the front, you know, some charismatic leader who has, you know, great speaking ability, is able to draw a large crowd of people. And the idea is that if we can center the entire church around this individual, this man or this woman, then we can grow the church. We can, we can attract people. And typically what they're doing is they're attracting people from smaller churches that are ailing, maybe aging. And so these small congregations, you know, comprise of maybe 50, 100 people, maybe 200 people, Usually, these mega churches will roll through a town and consume those churches. And yet, what Paul says really is very different. He says, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And when you look at your body, you know, there's diversity within your body, and not every member plays the same function. And so, this leads to our first principle, which is that the body of Christ emphasizes participation of its members. That each of us have a very specific role. We talked last week about how God gave each and every believer in Christ a spiritual gift to exercise, to be able to to function in the body of Christ. And so each and every one of us have an individual role to play. And God expects for us to do that. You know, by contrast, you see the institutional church where there's only a few people doing the ministry and everybody else is just sort of waiting around for the blessing. I remember hearing this analogy many years ago when I was a young believer that always stuck to me. Somebody said, you know, the the modern-day American church resembles an NBA game. You know, you have 10 guys on the court in desperate need for, for rest, and 20,000 people in the stands in desperate need of exercise. And so, you know, you have a bunch of people in a lot of these mega churches or these institutional churches just sitting around doing nothing. And of course, you know, you're going you're gonna to feel disinterested after some time. You're going to be like, what's the point in this? I've got better things to do with my time. He says in verse 15 and 16, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. So Paul might be using a little bit of sarcasm here. You know, where one part of the body is comparing itself and its role, its function with another part of the body. And I think this points to our second principle, which is that every member matters. That each of us have a unique role to play. And God has an expectation when He gives us our spiritual gift, when He places us into the body of Christ, just as He pleases, that we are going to play our part, that we matter. And I think this, is, this has a lot of appeal to people in our world today who feel like their lives don't matter. You know, every day is just a grind. I just, I work as hard as I can. I try to make as much money as I possibly can. I just 
do this task that is set right in front of me, and yet there is this sense that my life is just heading nowhere. Why does it even matter? Well, those who downplay their capabilities often misunderstand how the body works. You know, if your hand said to your feet, or if somebody came to you and said, uh, which matters more, your hands or your feet? You'd be like, um, what kind of question is that? Why can't we have both, right? I mean, it's, uh, what, would your, what would your body look like if you reversed your hands and your feet or if you had only, you know, you had four sets of hands or four sets of feet? It would be really weird. And so, uh, you know, when we look around and we say, well, I'm not like this person over here. I've got this role and this person seems more significant. I'm, I'm not that important. We're really misunderstanding the role that we play in the body. Those who downplay their capabilities use it often as a justification for inaction. Usually we tell ourselves, well, you know, I'm just not like a public speaker. I don't have a bubbly personality like her. She could just talk to anyone on the street. I'm like painfully introverted and there's no way I can even, you know, I have trouble talking to even people I've known for 20 years. So how, how, am I, how am I supposed to play a significant role here? And yet, again, these verses confront us with the reality that we matter. And that most of the time when we try to downplay our capabilities, you know, we're just, we're saying, I'm not like them, so I'm just going to sit back. And finally, those who downplay their capabilities often are envying another person's role. You know, I wish like I was like this person over here. I wish I was as gifted as her. Well, he says in verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Again, he's using biting sarcasm here. You know, imagine if you, uh, you know, were, were having a baby and, you know, the, the doctors deliver the baby, and they're just like, um, ma'am, uh, you know, you just gave birth to a large eight-pound eye. You would be horrified, wouldn't you? You'd be like, that's not cool. And so, you know, Paul is giving us kind of this visual. He's like, what if your whole body was an eye? That would not be a good thing. You know, this, I think, points to diversity. The fact that, you know, the body illustrates the unity of, of different parts, but it also gives us the picture of diversity, that God wants diversity, not, not, just, not, not just in the way that, you know, we grew up, or our socioeconomic status, or maybe our cultural background. That's, that's not exactly what he's talking about, although it includes it. What he's talking about is the diversity of gifts and functions that we play. You know, God doesn't stamp out cookie-cutter Christians, which might be a huge relief to you, if, I mean, just as it was for me to hear that, that, you know, God doesn't want me to look like some other Christian, or this stereotype that I have in my mind. God uh, uses different individuals with different giftings. 
And really, it challenges the celebrity approach to church life that, you know, you have to get this big-name celebrity who's going to really drive the growth and vitality of a church. That'd be like saying that the, bo- the body needs to be one gigantic eye or one gigantic mouth in order to be successful. You know, I was just talking to a guy a number of years ago who uh, was saying that, you know, he was having trouble le- co-leading with a guy in his group. And the reason for it was that, you know, he was extremely different than his co-leader. You know, he tends to be kind of a type A, uh, fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of guy, and his co-leader was more reserved, liked to think things through, tended to be kind of a foot-dragger. And as we, we talked about it, one of the things that he mentioned was, you know, what's really cool is that I, it's starting to dawn upon me that the strengths he possesses are things that I need. And the strengths that I possess are the ones that he needs. And he says, after all, you know, when I look around my group and really in my leadership team, do I really want a bunch of other people just like me? That sounds horrible. And, you know, that's exactly what what Paul's uh, challenging here is this, this idea that, you know, you need this certain type of individual to succeed in, in, in growing your church. He says in verse 18, but if in fact God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. And so God works really sovereignly uh, in mixing up the body of Christ and creating really a, a perfect mix and blend of gifting. And so really this verse points to our fourth principle, God's sovereignty, in arranging us just as he wants. And, you know, this points to a number of different passages throughout the New Testament which talk about how God has given us a very specific purpose for our lives and that he has a plan for us. He says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Talk about purpose. You know, God looks at you, he sees the incredible potential that you have, and he's outlined the, the good works that you can accomplish throughout your life, serving him. And he's also given you the gifting to carry that out. And so, you know, God, through the body of Christ, gives us tremendous purpose. And this negates the thought that, many, that may pop into our minds, you know, I'm just in the wrong home church. Some of us feel that way. If I was just in this other group, you know, I'd be so much happier. Or, you know, if I was just uh, being spiritually mentored by this other person in another group, then I would be more effective for God. And yet this really discounts the fact that God arranged the body of Christ exactly the way he wants. That he has placed you specifically in the home church or in the local body that you're a part of. Um, Verse 19. 
If they were all one part, where would the body be? Good question. And this, I think, points to our fifth principle, which is the body of Christ is about individuality, not individualism. Big difference there. You know, in the modern American world, you know, we value, we prize individualism. And individualism refers to this idea that we don't need to rely on anyone for our needs, that we are self-reliant, that we should, we should never, you know, entrust ourselves to people, that if we want something, we need to go out there and get it. We can't, we can't sit around and wait for other people to give it to us. And so a lot of times there is this feeling that we need to kind of keep people at arm's length. You know, people shouldn't be prying into our business, especially in the area of our sexuality or our finances. I mean, those sorts of things, really, nobody has any business weighing into that. And so what you see here is modern individualism colliding with what Paul talks about here where he wants us to be interdependent with one another while also possessing individuality. And, you know, in, in our culture today, individuality really matters. You know, people will um, customize their cars or get custom finishes in their home in order to, to showcase and highlight that they're different, that they're not just like, you know, a cookie-cutter person. Uh, you know, people will, uh, you know, stain their skin with uh, tattoos in order to, to show that, you know, they're unique. Um, and, you know, we do this in a, in a host of different ways, and that's, that really changes from generation to generation. You know, in our culture today, it's about, you know, getting limited edition clothes or, or getting tons of tattoos all over your body and on your face. You know, even a generation ago, it was about getting tattoos all over, or um, getting um, piercings all over your face. And so you'd walk into a building like this, and uh, you, you'd have people with, you know, lip piercings, nose piercings, eyebrow piercings. Um, and, you know, it looked like they just tripped and fell face forward into a tackle box. <laughs> and that was cool. I was like, oh, yeah, that's, oh, you're so cool, man. You got all this metal on your face. Um, now, you know, one of the things that's really great about the body of Christ is that the body of Christ highlights the individual, that we, we uh, possess a certain function. And God cares about that, that we maintain our individuality. Verse 19 through 21. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Imagine an argument like that breaking out between your body where they were fighting about who is more important or just dismissing the function of the other part. Um, again, this points to another principle of interdependence that God wants us to um, depend and rely on one another in opposition to modern individualism. That we should, we should rely on each other. That God actually wants us to play our part, but then rely on another person to play their part. 
You know, may, maybe you're not the most outgoing person. And so, you know, maybe there's a person in your group who's, who's very outgoing, who likes to talk to new people, likes to talk to strangers, is great at having conversations with people. And so, you know, maybe what God wants is, is for you to work as a team with this individual to carry out this work of service, you know, whenever a new person comes out. And so interdependence is really important. You know, notice the eye doesn't just rely on the presence of the hand, but also its function. You know, you go to a modern-day American church with, you know, hundreds of people in an auditorium like this, or even thousands if one person decides not to show up the next week, what difference is that going to make in your life? No difference at all, right? Who cares? I don't know this person. It doesn't impact me that she's not there. And so it's not just mere, merely showing up that matters. It's that we show up and also play our part that matters. He says in verses 22 through 24, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lack it. So even the weaker members of our body you know, the individuals with a lot of baggage or people maybe who are uh, coming in with uh, massive, massive amounts of problems or disabilities, you know, God doesn't want us to overlook those people. You know, in the world today, people will just merely, uh, you know, discard somebody who has, you know, social awkwardness or who's got a lot of problems or who has, you know, a serious addiction. People, people give that kind of individual, a wide berth. And yet God calls on us to love and serve those people and to pay the price that our world is unwilling to pay. He says, there are those who are weaker members, but also those parts which are unpresentable. Um, now, most commentators think that Paul is using kind of a euphemism here that our unpresentable parts are those that should not be on display, if you know what I mean. That he might be referring to um, our genitalia. <laughs> and so he says, you know, even our unpresentable parts, you know, we, we, we treat with special modesty. We, you know, um, we, we clothe them. We make sure they're covered. And, um, you know, I've seen this firsthand. I remember leading a high school Bible study a number of years ago, and um, there was a guy there who, you know, had a, was incredibly socially awkward. And, and I think, looking back on it now, he probably had maybe like a developmental disability, but his parents refused to ever get him diagnosed. But, you know, uh, he would do things, like he was, he was really intelligent, but he just missed social cues, and, and he would say, like, embarrassing stuff, especially around new people. Um, for example, if a new person came to our meeting, at the very beginning of the meeting, he would sit down, and we would all pray, and he would, he would look at the person who was new there, obviously the new person, and pray, say, uh, Lord, 
pray for our special friend here. And we would just be like, oh, you know, all of us would just be cringing in our seats like, ah. Um, I remember one time uh, we were out playing football and, um, you know, he was, he was fairly athletic and he threw this perfect spiral at this guy, um, you know, from across, uh, from across the lawn. But it so happened the guy wasn't looking and it hit him right in the crotch. And so this guy was, you know, writhing on the ground for about five minutes recovering. And at the end of our study, uh, this guy felt really bad about this and was, was praying. And he said, he said, uh, Jesus, I just pray that you would um, heal Kyle's gonads. <laughs> and uh, there was like this new guy there who was really popular. Um, and, you know, afterward, we, we, we went up to him. We were like, you know, um, sorry about our friend. You know, he, we really care about him, but, you know, sometimes he just doesn't know what to say. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. So a few months go by, and this, this same guy who, you know, was real popular at school, um, re- real well-respected, eventually decided to give his life to Christ. And so we were super excited because, you know, we were just a, we were just a small band of, you know, uh, guys studying the Bible, like maybe t- 10 or 12 of us. And uh, so one of the guys said, you know, man, well, like what do you think was like the tipping point that brought you to a place where you felt like you wanted to receive Christ? And he said, you know, honestly, I love the teachings. I loved you know, the evidence that you guys presented, but the thing that really struck me was how you cared for this guy. Never seen anything like that before. And he's like, you know, I see him at school and everybody just ignores him and laughs at him. And it just blew me away to see over the last couple months how you guys invested in him and showed him love. I knew there was something different about you guys. And so it's important for us to love those individuals whom God places in our lives, no matter how weird they are um, or how, how much baggage they're bringing into their relationship with God. God calls on us to take care of them. Now, so that points us to our seventh principle, which is that all people are welcome. Now, We should also mention, too, that the body of Christ isn't just a hospital housing wounded people. You know, the the Bible depicts God's community also in terms of an army, a military unit that carries out God's mission. And so it's important for us to to, uh, focus on that while at the same time taking care of people. And, you know, one way to look at this is that, um, you know, a military unit isn't just a hospital. But a military unit without a hospital would be a terrible military unit, right? And so we need to have both. He says in verse 25, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And so he's pointing to our eighth principle, which is unity in the body of Christ. That God concerns himself with our unity with one another. And we're not talking about structural unity. We're not talking about denominational unity. There are some people who will look at a verse like this 
and say, well, see, what we need to do is we need to come up with like an organization, an umbrella organization to try to bring all the denominations together so that we can work with one another. And I'm not saying that that's bad, but I like the fact that there's diversity in the churches that I see. You know, I think about other churches in the central Ohio area, and I've visited a lot of different places, and, and frankly, I feel like this is my home. This is the place that uh, would put up with my rough edges, with, uh, you know, my problems, and um, would also, you know, it really has that bent where, um, you know, they were able, you know, people here were able to answer questions, tough questions that I have. And so I think God uses a variety of different fellowships or bodies of Christ in order to reach a variety of different people. So diversity is a good thing. The kind of unity he's talking about is the unity that you experience on a home church level, interpersonally, not organizationally. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 2 and 3. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, and make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. And so... Notice he says that we should keep the unity of the Spirit. He doesn't say that we should strive for unity, but that he's calling on us to maintain what we already have. One of the great things about the body of Christ is that we don't have to create unity in our community. We have that. God forged that through our relationship with Christ. And, you know, I think about our world today and people long for unity. People will um, array themselves behind a, sp a specific uh, political agenda or a specific cause that they all find in common. Uh, or, you know, people will, will organize themselves around different hobbies or, or common interests and, th and that's how people are able to forge unity. You know, just a couple weeks ago, I decided to give my kids, my six-year-old and three-year-old, a cultural experience. And so we went to Comic-Con to look at some of the people there. And uh, it was amazing, you know, walking around there, just, just uh, people were very friendly. You know, you'd ask them to take a picture. be like, hey, you want to take a picture of my son? And you're like, oh, yeah, you know. And so they were totally cool with that. And uh, these people were totally into uh, comics and, you know, fantasy and anime and, you know, the whole everything in that category. Uh, people united around that, and yet what those people have is really, it really pales in comparison to what we have in the body. Because what we have doesn't depend on our interests or the things that we do. It depends only on what Christ has done, that he has united us to one another. And he also says, make every effort. You know, this isn't a passive thing. This is something that we need to work toward, something that we need to continually give ourselves to. Make every effort. You know, we're straining to, to preserve that unity because there is this tendency to fracture. You know, God says that he has an enemy, and one of the main ways that he tries to defeat us 
is by sowing discord and disunity, launching accusations, whispering them in our ears about one another. And so it takes work to maintain this unity, to keep it together. Now, maybe it'd be good to do a little comparison. I like charts. Helps me think. Helps me relax. (laughs) Uh, Now, one way maybe we could look at this is that you have the disunified church and and the unified church and see if we can kind of look at these two uh, side by side. You know, a disunified church, people don't really know or understand each other's problems or potentials. Um, And it's not because people are fighting with one another. It's not because people are bickering or jawing at each other because of, you know, differences they have. Instead, it's because people are just simply disengaged. We're just mere acquaintances with people. We're not truly friends. And so you might call this passive disunity. It's possible to, uh, to assemble every single week Spend tons and tons of time with people uh, in your home group and yet be totally disunified with them. Passively. On the other hand, you have in a unified church, people do know each other's lives and are engaged in a struggle on their behalf. There's a sense that people on a general level, I mean, you know, we don't want to be creepy about it, uh, but in general, we know about each other and we we have a general idea of of the struggles that each of us have also the potential that each each of us possess as well in a disunified church if people know each other they don't really care enough to engage most of the time you know they're just sort of gossiping about other people's problems you know oh boy did you hear about larry he had that bender last week heard it was real bad and yet they'll, they'll never talk to Larry. They'll never talk to that person about their issue. They'll just merely, you know, chatter behind their back. In a unified church, we may, not, we may not know how to help the person, but we feel a burden to help them out. You know, a lot of times we run into confusing situations. People are very complex. And so sometimes a person will reveal to us an issue in, in their lives, and we feel completely inept to help them out. But inwardly, we feel this burden, this desire to help them out. And so, you know, maybe what we'll do is we'll, we, at the very least, we'll pray for them. Or we'll pray that God will give us some insight to help them out. Or maybe we'll seek out somebody who has a little bit more experience or maybe a counselor to give us some tips on how to help counsel this individual. So there's this desire to try to help one another out. In a disunified church, people extol and crave privacy and secrecy. You know, when I see somebody who is policing secrecy in the body of Christ, it raises red flags because it indicates that there is, there's a value system issue, that there's a misunderstanding of the body of Christ and how it functions. Whereas in a unified church, you know, people accept vulnerability and disclosure. A couple days ago, I was hanging out with uh, 10 close friends, and uh, we just went around the room and decided we were just going to sh- open up about something that, you know, God has been doing in our lives. And some of the guys that I've known, in some cases, for almost 10 years now, 
you know, are sharing about their current struggle. And, um, you know, it was, it was amazing. We, none of us felt judged. And there was this abiding sense that, you know, God's grace was there, that we felt this freedom to share with one another, knowing that we weren't going to judge one another, knowing that no one was going to get in trouble for this, but that, you know, we are sharing our lives with one another because we're part of the body of Christ. In a disunified church, you know, people entertain and share resentments and disdain for other members. They're constantly backbiting each other. Whereas in a unified church, uh, those uh, who won't forgive get confronted. You know, I had a guy come up to me one time and say, man, I just really hate this dude in our home church. You're like, what? He's like, what's wrong with that? I hate him. You're like, dude, how can you hate somebody in the body of Christ? I mean, as a forgiven person, how can you withhold forgiveness from somebody? doesn't make any sense. God has forgiven you of so much. Forgiven you for all the things you've ever done wrong in your life and the things that you will do in the future and yet you're saying that you cannot forgive this person for this one petty thing because she disrespected you? You gotta be kidding me. And so uh, there's no tolerance for this bitterness and hatred that you see out in the world. In a disunified church, most people spend their time thinking and praying about themselves. Turns out, that happens here too. But in a unified church, you'll also see people spending their time thinking and praying about other people. There's a desire to figure out ways to, to spur one another on spiritually to grow with God. Um, you know, people who will come to you and... Um, you could tell that they've really been thinking about you and give you an encouragement versus, you know, some sort of flattery like, you're just a really cool guy. And you're like, that didn't, that didn't require any thought at all. In a disunified church, people show up at meetings. Whereas in a unified church, people show up at meetings ready and willing to serve. You know, a lot of times you, uh, you'll show up to a meeting, you'll flop down in the chair, exhausted, and be like, bless me, you know? <laughs> and you walk out of there feeling horrible. You're like, cool. Whereas, you know, uh, in a unified church, people are, are thinking about how they can contribute. Oftentimes you'll hear people say, you know, what are we studying tonight? I want to read it ahead of time so that maybe I can share something. And so they're trying to glean insight in their own personal time, looking for an opportunity to be able to share something. Or, you know, maybe on the car ride over to a meeting, they're praying, you know, God, just give me an opportunity to talk to someone. It doesn't have to be anything, you know, uh, life-changing or anything like that. I just want to be able to Maybe listen to somebody who has a problem or an issue in their lives. And so, you know, when you're in a group like this, when, when you have a, a lot of people who, there, there's a consensus that we're going to come to serve. You know, you walk out of those meetings feeling energized, excited about the things of God. Versus, you know, when people just walk in and they're all tired and they're unwilling to serve. 
have a bad attitude. In a disunified church, you know, people want to feel blessed. Whereas in a unified church, uh, people strive together for a common goal. And often through that, feel blessing. They experience it that way as they, as they give out instead of looking to take. I remember um, hearing the story where this guy was at a grocery store and he ran into his friend who attends his home church and he was like, oh, dude, I didn't see you last night. He was like, yeah, man, it was terrible. I was on my way over to home church and my car broke down on the side of the road. And so I had to deal with that and, you know, it, it, it sucked. And he's like, yeah, it's a bummer. And the dude who uh, wasn't able to go to home church said, you know, the worst part about that was that I know that I play a very specific role in our home church, and that night there was a vacancy, that I wasn't able to play my part. I mean, imagine if all of us came to a meeting with that mentality. If I don't show up, whether physically or to play my part, there's going to be a hole. Something's missing. You know, in a disunified church, thoughts of how we might affect others rarely comes up when we make plans. Whereas in a unified church, you know, loyalty to others means that I, always, uh, that I can't always get what I want. You know, in our culture today, people are willing to uproot their families. They're willing to just tear apart relationships in order to uh, pursue, you know, success and career. Often, years later, looking back with regret that they did that. There's no concern for relationships. What matters is success and money. Whereas, you know, uh, 1 Corinthians has argued over the last few chapters that, you know, God calls on us to lay aside our freedoms occasionally in order to love others. That we make sacrifices for the body of Christ. In a disunified church, you have to pretend we're close and it leads to fakiness. You know, a lot of times they'll have icebreakers uh, at, the, at the beginning of like a small group, if you go to a mega church and, you know, people are playing these uh, juvenile games, um, you know, like the ones that you have to do whenever you go to like a corporate meeting at work or something like that. And it's just like, oh my gosh, this is so creepy. Why are we doing this? We're adults here. Why are we, why are we you know, uh, placing rubber bands on our wrists and tying ourselves to one another. What is, what is the point of this? Whereas in a unified church, you know, it's, there's real closeness and, there, and there's a palpable sense when people walk in, there's something different about these people. They actually love each other. They actually know each other. In a disunified church, it's often very superficial, whereas in a unified church, there is a mark of authenticity that people automatically detect. Finally, he says in verse 25 and 26, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part's honored, every part rejoices with it. And so this brings us to our ninth and final principle, which is that we are organically linked to one another. That when one member suffers, we all suffer. And again, this confronts modern-day individualism which says we don't have to rely on anyone and essentially uh, you know if I'm hurting I just need to basically take care of it myself I, I shouldn't open up with people about it 
Whereas in the body of Christ, you know, God calls on us to lean on one another and to let others bear our grief and our burden. All right, let's draw a couple points of application. I think, first of all, God provides the body of Christ as an answer to personal loneliness and alienation in our culture. You know, some of us feel just this agonizing sense that I have no one to talk to, and I'm struggling. And God says that the answer to that is the body of Christ, that he's provided a venue for us to experience real community and real depth in relationships. Secondly, you have an opportunity to experience this mystical union tonight. You know, if you're here and you've never turned to God and received the forgiveness that He offers through Jesus Christ, God says that He wants to put aside the differences and that He's paid for our wrongdoing in Christ and allows us to be able to come to Him freely just by asking and saying, you know, I I want you to come into my life. And the moment we do that, we can experience this union with God and also an incredible union with one another. All right, maybe we should call it quits there. Um, Why don't we uh, end with a little bit of prayer and then uh, we can just hang out. God, I remember how these um, passages impacted me for the first time, opening my eyes to the true intent that you have in the church, that uh, we're here to build one another up and as a result that we um, just continually grow. And uh, it's an exciting picture. And, you know, even though I believe that uh, we've got an awesome church here that I love, uh, it's, it's one that, you know, still has flaws and one uh, that continues to strive to conform to this picture that you give us in 1 Corinthians 12. And so I pray that we can uh, evaluate these individual areas and figure out how, uh, which one of those we need to work on in order to uh, resemble this picture that you give us. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.